turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Uh, if you want one, we can get you one if you don't have one. Secondly, um, we will have it on the screen. And it is my pleasure and honor to be back with you after uh, going out. Last week, I went and uh, preached at a youth conference down in Macon, Georgia. And uh, actually, I was in Forsyth, Georgia. That doesn't really matter. It's just a little bit north of there. And um, we had a good time, and I realized that I am not young anymore because I feel felt pretty bad. Um, and while we were at the, I was staying with some good friends of ours, the Bradshaws, and uh, we were, uh, we were kind of got home late. It was one of those things you really, you want to talk, but you're so worn out that talking would take more energy than you currently possess. You ever been to that point before? So we were glad to be in each other's company because I hadn't seen our friends in a while, but we wanted something to kind of break the awkward silences that would happen when every one of us would get too tired to talk. So what do we do? We ran to Netflix. And so we put Netflix on in the background, and he was asking me, he's like, hey, do you, um, do you know of any good documentaries? I said, well, I'm a nerd. Of course I know some good documentaries. And I, I found this documentary called Desert Runners, okay? Now, this thing blew my mind because it chronicles these people who are semi-professional athletes. Most of them actually are, are amateur athletes that decided to run these things called ultra marathons with, with this company called Racing the Planet. And they decided in one year to try to run all four of these ultra marathons, and this documentary follows and chronicles these people as they try and they struggle and they huff and puff through the world's largest, most formidable deserts. It's awesome. And the, it's a six-day thing, and they cover 155 miles in six days. It's like doing six marathons straight in the desert, plus you have to carry everything you need with you, like the thing you're going to sleep on, your own food. They do have water stations in the middle, but it is totally engrossing and fascinating. And, so, and it follows these people. And here's the deserts they go to. They go to the uh, uh, Atacama Desert. I said that wrong in Chile. The Gobi Desert in China. The Sahara Desert in Egypt. And then they go to Antarctica, which is kind of a desert. And they run 155 miles in Antarctica. It is totally, like, I'm, I, I, are you getting my geek vibe coming off of this? I mean, and I love this documentary. I think I've watched it three or four times, and I, I just think about this. These people devote their whole lives to getting ready for these marathons. They have to change their schedules and, and finding the reasons why each one of these people do it. And, and at the end, there's a documentary of a documentary. That sounds funny. But the people who made the film start talking about the people in the film, and they just, every one of them had a different reason. And most of the people who survived it were not the professional athletes. It was just the people who prepared and, and kept going. And I want to ask you this. I mean, when you watch something like that, or maybe you've watched a sports documentary, you see somebody do something harrowing, doesn't it make you like, first off, I'm glad I'm not doing that. That's the first thing that comes to your mind. Second thing is like, I wish I could do that. And sometimes it inspires people to like, okay, let's run. I'm thinking about it. I'm still in the thinking process about running, you know. So I wanted to think, could you imagine if they tried to do 155 miles of running without any preparation? Can you imagine that? 
I mean, some of us walked the up, up the steps. You're like, whoo! <sighs> no, then you got like 155 miles to go in the desert. Can you imagine if they tried that without any preparation? It is not going to end well because some of these people have been doing it, been preparing, preparing. Sometimes their whole life they've been athletes and they've been running and running and running, and they get out there and the elements they get oh, so worn out and and they don't have any preparation. But I want to take you. I want to ask you this question: Could you imagine if we approached our revival without any preparation? Because, I'll be honest with you, we're all going to be pulled, stretched, and, and, and we're going to be tired from this thing. Because I tell you why. It's going to be Wednesday night. It's going to be Thursday night. It's going to be Friday night. It's going to be 6.30. We're going to be inundated with songs that are, just, that are, are glorifying God. We're going to be inundated with times of prayer. We're going to hear Eric's got some great messages coming for us. And so you can imagine if we approach that, this kind of spiritual marathon that we're about to face without any preparation and what that could look like. I don't know about you, I don't want to get out of that. Being unprepared is a bad thing. And so I want, to do, I want us to do something. I want us to prepare for revival this morning. And in so doing, I want us to prepare by doing, by doing three things. Prepare to, by, by training our minds to think correctly. Do you, you know what it means to, to, to train your mind to think correctly? The reason training happens like in law enforcement and other things is so that when you're in the situation that your training will take over. And immediately you'll go into it so you don't have to think about it. And so that's where we are. I would like us, I would look in Mark chapter 9 and, and get into this situation which Jesus is, it's a transition in Mark's gospel in which he is, he's gone from his miracle teaching ministry into a more private ministry preparing his disciples for the cross that's to come and to be without him. And so in Mark chapter 9, we see this training that he gives them. And I want, here's the three places I want us to train, train our mind this morning, and it's this. We need to know our inability our inability. Second, I want us to know Jesus' character. Train our minds to think about who Jesus' character. So when we hear Jesus, we don't pop into a mind, a, a picture of Jesus doesn't pop into our mind. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Third thing, I want us to know and see the power of faith. We need to train our minds to understand the power of faith. So if you would, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Let's begin. Jesus said, or this is the story about Jesus. It says this, and when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now, let me put this in context because that just kind of showed up out of nowhere. Just before this, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain. And there he is transfigured, which means the glory of who he is, that he, the, his, the part of him that is, is God, the, the, the godness of Jesus, the, 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 he is the God-man, and so he shows forth his inward glory. He shows them who he is. And Peter says one of the dumbest lines in the Bible. He's like, hey, um, you guys want me to build you some tents up here so we can stay? It's just the most, I'll go back and read it. It's very awkward. And Jesus is like, well, you don't get this, okay? So they're coming down this mountain, and they had this amazing mountaintop religious experience. They got to see who Jesus was. They've been hearing about Jesus. They've been seeing, but with their eyes, Peter, James, and John get to see who Jesus is. And Jesus is in fellowship with those saints who have passed on. And so we get down here, and as soon as they come down from the spiritual experience, you know what happens? An argument. Some of you, when you come, when you get home today, an argument might break out. I know that's shocking. I know you're like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to cast that on you or project that on you, but who, who knows? Sometimes our greatest, our greatest spiritual dives happen after spiritual highs. And so we get to this place. Jesus came to the disciples, who, the, the nine who were left, 
and he, and he saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So there's the teachers of the law. They're arguing with Jesus' disciples. So Jesus shows up. The word immediately appears. It's a big time in Mark's gospel, and it's just getting to the point. And immediately, all of the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, this greatly amazed word is very odd language. But they had gone to try to see Jesus. They saw his disciples, and apparently some people had come to see him, a great crowd. And especially one man who we're going to see him in, he brought his son, who was demon-possessed, to be, to be exercised, the demon to be exercised. So they all show up to see Jesus, and, and Jesus is not there. So there's this argument that breaks out, and Jesus shows up, and they're all amazed. It's almost like, Jesus! Do you ever... I worked in youth ministry for a long time, and there's been some phenomenons that have happened throughout youth ministry, okay? And I'll just give you, put, put these in, in, in your brain for a second. Uh, think about, back in the day, the first boy band was the Beatles. The difference between them and all the other boy bands is they actually could play music, okay? All right, so you got, you got the, and remember that, that Beatlemania? Ah! So that was before my time, okay? And so then you got further on, and you go back in the 80s, it was New Kids on the Block. Oh, oh, oh. So that happened. And then you got NSYNC, and you got, uh, what's that other band? Backstreet Boys? Oh, somebody yelled it. Don't you forget about my Backstreet Boys. I'll take you out. Okay? And then it went to Bieber, and then One Direction. And this just keeps happening, this phenomenon. I want you to get this. Jesus was was big time. Now, they didn't understand him. But his teaching and miracle ministry was huge. And they were amazed and astonished. He's here! And this is is a a very important thing to note, that when he shows up on the scene, the tenor of what's happening changes. And so we go on. It says, they saw him, they were greatly amazed, and they ran to him and they greeted, hey, Jesus, Jesus, hey! In verse 16, Jesus asked them, what are you guys arguing about with them? So there's, he walks out, out down the mountain. There's this big argument. They see Jesus. They're, hey, Jesus, yeah, you're here. And then they ask the question, what are, you guys ar- what are you arguing about with them? Why is there this beef between the scribes and my followers? And so verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So all of this arguing happens because these people see Jesus. This man sees Jesus' followers. And he assumes Jesus is going to be there, so he takes his demon-possessed boy to see Jesus. He's not there, and the disciples doing something they've already previously done under the power of Jesus in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6 when they were sent out by Jesus. They, they are there. They, they are trying to cast out this demon, and it doesn't work. And this gives the scribes and the Pharisees who do not like Jesus because he challenges them on their, on their religious beliefs, and it challenges their system. They see an opportunity to come at Jesus, and so what has happened is this big argument, and what is lost in the middle of this big argument is the man and his son who are in great turmoil. This is free. This is a freebie. Churches who have turmoil in them forget about people in need, especially of the gospel. That's why it's so very important, so very, very important that we maintain 
a spirit of unity and love, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, always loving one another, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, calling sin sin, but not doing it in such a way that it is to be puffed up, but in a way that we would try to return our brothers to the faith. So I want you to get this. They're missing the point. This guy, he's coming and says, Jesus, I brought you my son. And he has this spirit that makes him mute. First off, I want to get this in here and show you this, that not all of the physical problems that you see in the Bible are demon-related, okay? Because there is this, there's this idea that some people have that all of the demon possession that you see in the Bible is just the uh, pre-modern man not understanding medical issues. And that's, that's seen in the Bible. That is not true. There are some medical issues that Jesus heals, like the withered hand and some other things, but there's some issues, that infirmities that are caused by people by demons. And these are spiritual beings that have fallen and that they, they, call, they work in, in legion with the devil, in league with the devil, to do the bidding of Satan and to go against the works of, of, of Christ, to blind us to the work of Jesus, to blind us to the greatness of God, and to keep us in our sins, and to torment us. And this demon has tormented this boy where he cannot talk. And we go on to see this, and that not only that, but the, de- the demon seizes him and throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And then this is very important. Look at the end of verse 18. It says this. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The word able or had the power to do so is one of the major words in this entire passage. It appears over and over again. And so there is an emphasis here on the disciples were not strong enough to do this. And I want to get, I want to put this we talked about we want to talk about our inability to prepare for ourselves for revival for the spiritual marathon that we're going to, about to hit. I want us to know something that we have we are unable to do any spiritual good on our own. Let me say that again. We are unable unable to do anything of spiritual worth or value on our own. I guarantee you, the disciples Knowing their history, they'd already been sent out by Jesus two times to go cast out demons and preach the kingdom of God. And so they were probably thinking pretty good about themselves. Like, let me tell you something. A couple of times, so this is like the demon, boy, the demon possessed uh, boy shows up with his dad, and they're like, we got this. God done this before. Everybody step back. I'll never forget one of the, one of the, the best uh, videos I've ever seen about pride coming before the fall was uh, there was a guy in our youth group who was talking about how great of a swimmer he was. And we were going to do this thing where it was, it was January, and he was going to have to swim out to the middle of this lake, get something, and come back. And as soon as he jumped in the icy water, after all this talk about how great of a swimmer he was, his body immediately shut down, and he had to go rescue him. It was like, oh, oh, man, help, help. We had to pull him in. It was awesome. I'm sure he's glad that I'm telling you this story because we got him on video going, yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about going on the swim team, you know, trying out for college. And then he jumps in like, oh, my bodies. And it was just perfect. And you can just see this. The disciples are at this place where they've, they've done this before. The demon-possessed boy comes up, and they're like, we got this. And they try to cast him out. Nothing. And the man points it out. He said, why is all this hubbub happening? Why is this argument going on? It's because I brought these people I brought my son to you, and they were unable to do this. 
And one of the great things is going to show that the disciples are not ready. They are not able. They are not ready yet for life without Jesus because he will be ascending. And we know the Spirit's coming, but they're not ready to carry on the ministry he has for them. They're not ready. And it shows it very clearly that they're not ready because they're still trying to do things in their own power. And some of us may think, because last time we had a revival, it was a powerful instance that we can do the same thing that we did last time. And this is a, this is a curse on churches all around. If we can just, just duplicate what the other church did, we'll be all right. If we could duplicate what we did last time that was successful, we'd be all right. It especially happens with older churches with like hundreds of years, it, it, hundreds of years of history. It's like, if we could just go back to this one prime period of time and do everything like we did then, things will be okay. I want you to get this. That is not the way it works. We cannot muster up revival. There is, a, there is a school of thought that is damaging and came into the history of the world um, in the 1800s that, think that, that basically says this. If you can get the right speaker, the right music, the right, the right system to appeal to people and to call them to faith and salvation, that you can muster up revival on your own. Revival being understood as a new movement of the work of God that takes his people who are once farther away than they should be and bring them back and bring new life and bring new people to faith. That, that has trickled in and has really done huge damage to the church because a move of God cannot be conjured up like it was some magic trick. The Jesus of the Bible is far too wild and wonderful for that. And so I want you to understand something. We are completely unable to do anything of spiritual work, worth apart from Jesus. The disciples' failures show us that. Jesus himself, when he's talking in John about who he was, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do a lot. No, apart from me, I'm just checking if you're listening, apart from me, you can do nothing. Zero, zilch. Now, that does not mean we can't have things. We can't try to do things. But it does mean this, any spiritual breakthrough or worth or value is not of us. It is all of the power of Jesus. So put this into perspective. And I don't want you to mishear me on this, okay? Revival is not like making brownies. I'm going to pick on my wife for a second, okay? If you go in our small group, you know this happened. The first time we had our small group together, she's going to love this. Okay, first time we had our small group at our house together, um, she was making brownies. One batch went well. The other batch, it was looking funky. She said, Matt, why is this looking funky? Like, I know why that was looking funky. Like, I don't know. I, know. I, can, I can grill things. That's what I can do. And she gets, she's like, oh, I forgot to add the oil. Do you think I could add it now? I was like, yeah. It was already in the pan poured out. I was like, yeah, add the oil. That was bad. What it did was it didn't mix in, so the oil was on the top, and so it basically like fried the top of the brownies in oil, and the other, other under part of it was like goo. We ate them, which I don't know what that says about our small group, but I love you guys, okay? We did. We like ate them like, like, like champions. Like, what are these weird ones? Oh, we had an oil instead. Oh, cool. And it was like, it, it happened. So revival is not add, add good speaker, great music, uh, this, and therefore all of this, because we did this, God owes us revival. That's a theological term, meaning complete hogwash. But we tend to think that way. 
We think that way about church. If we could get the rocking band, and if we could get the good speaker, if we get the good pastor, if we could get this going and that going, I want you to get this. We should strive for excellence in everything we do, not because God will, not because we are seeking to try to trick God into doing things, but out of worship. Does that make sense? We strive for excellence in everything we do. We want to be good. We want to welcome people. We do that out of worship for Jesus and love for our fellow man. Love, love that when they come here, they want to feel welcome, that they want to hear the, God, well, hear the gospel as clearly as possible, so we want to remove distractions. But we ain't aiming at perfect, folks. What are we aiming at? That's worship. What do we need? Well, all these things, you can have all these recipes and still not have revival. You know why? Because it's a move of God. And so here's what I'm asking us to do. And so what I see, hope we see in this passage, us to prepare and, and pray, because there is a way, there's a way of preparation that could put, uh, put us in the path of revival. Let me give you an example that shows, shows you the way that you can be in the path of revival without thinking about it as a way, we did all this stuff, God, why didn't you show up, or why can we muster this up? Think of a sailboat for a second, okay? Unless you, it, like, you got a sailboat, what do you do to move the sailboat? Some of you are thinking, will you use the engine? Because <laughs> most of the sailboats now have engines, dummy. I know that, okay? Just think about a straight sailboat. Wait, I heard you. Raise the sails. Why do you raise the sails? What powers it? The wind. Does that person really have any control over the wind? Not so much. Whether it blows or whether it doesn't blow? No, it doesn't. The person does not. I want you to get this. What we are doing by coming in spiritual preparation and the other things that we'll mention soon in this message is we are just raising the sail. Now, the boat will move if the wind blows and even if the sails aren't up sometimes because God will not be thwarted in his purposes and plans. But there are ways in which we are called to behave and act and approach God in these situations. And so in preparation, what we are doing here and looking at our inability is, is this sounds weird because a lot of times you want to talk about, oh, uh, my ability. I want to talk about we can do this. We can do this. No, no, no. I want you to know something. We can't do this. And if we can, if we can do something apart from Jesus, it was not worth doing. And so I want you to understand very clearly the disciples failed because they were doing stuff in their own power. They were not powerful enough. It's going to come, I'm going to show you and prove, you, prove this, this to you in just a second when, when Jesus and the disciples talk about their inability. But I want you to see this, that we are unable to do anything of spiritual worth apart from Jesus. But what we can do is make our hearts soft. Well, not make them soft, but make them ready. Make our ears ready. Make us attuned. Give our attention. Repent of some sin that's in your life. Come, come. Come, come in faith. Come in prayer to him. Belabored that, but I want you to get that. We are unable to accomplish anything apart from Jesus. Going on, it says this. So there's a big failure. And so we pick up, and we pick up in verse 19, and it says this. And he answered, Jesus is going to have a little... <laughs> monologue here about the lack of faith that he sees. And so in verse 19, he says, oh, faithless generation. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when your mom was shaking your head at you when you were a kid, like, when are you ever going to learn? That's never fun to make mama upset. When are you ever going to learn? And Jesus right here, he's looking at these people who are his children, and he is, and, and he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them on over. 
Then we get in verse 20, and Jesus said this, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. That would be a scene, right? Hey, bring that boy over, okay? And he's mute, right? Okay? Well, the demon sees Jesus, and he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons sometimes know more than we do. And so we see that. He sees him, and all of a sudden, he just blood-curdling scream. Ah! And they convulsed the boy, and he threw him to the ground, and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. If that happened today, in this place, it would be quite the scene. Am I right? And then we get in verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, what? Why did Jesus ask that? How long has this been happening to him? Does he really need to know that? Do you think he has a clue about that, being the Son of God? Yeah. Why? Why? I think I'm going to give you two, two, two possible reasons. Okay, one is mine and one is from, uh, one is from John MacArthur on, on this sermon uh, or on this text. And I want to give you this just real quick. I think first, Jesus is wanting to show the impossibility of the task at hand. That this is not some kind of thing that is going to come and go. That this boy has been afflicted by this for a long, long time. So I want, he's, I want, he's showing that this is an impossible task, and it's going to be made possible. Faith is going to be the key here. Secondly, I want you to know this. I think Jesus asks because he genuinely cares. Because this is actually going to come up later. The, the man's going to ask Jesus, if you're able, can you heal him? And what does he say? Also, if you're able to heal him, then the, the man asks. This is going to be, we're going to look at this in just a second. He says, if that is the case, have compassion. That's a word that we, that's a word that, it's got this idea of, um, it's very guttural sounding in, he, in, in Greek. It's, it's got this idea, splok, splok noai, or splok noai. And the, I like to say that because it's, it's fun to go, splok. You like that noise? That's fun. And it has this idea of like somewhere inside, like down deep. In your, and the, the word can be used to talk about, I love, you know, we'd say, I love you with all of my heart. Well, you know, your heart's just your muscle, right? It just beats, okay? I love you with every beat of my heart. What are we talking about? The seed of your emotions. And so one of the words that kind of is kind of um, come about in this language, in the Greek language, is this idea of I love you from the bottom of my kidneys or my liver. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's just another organ. And uh, so it's, just, it's this idea of that it, and it's only used in the Gospels. It's usually, mostly only used to talk about Jesus having a deep inward empathy and compassion and love for someone who is in trouble. And I want you to get that because we are unable, but Jesus is able and he is compassionate and caring and he cares about us. And so we see, I think the reason he asked about this boy's condition is because he cared about the father and what he's been dealing with. Look at what the father has been dealing with when we go down and we look. He said, this has been going on from childhood, and this is what's been going on from childhood. Look in verse 22. And it has often cast him into the fire. 
in this time period, the way they heated, the way they cooked, everything was done on an open fire, so there would be open fires everywhere. And so this boy, this demon, was really trying to kill this boy. And I believe the only reason he was not responsible or not capable of doing so is because God would not let it happen. And so this boy was cast, often this demon would cast the boy into the fire, and he would be, obviously be burnt. And so this dad from childhood has been having to watch every time he's around open fire, which is always trying to keep this kid from getting in the fire because of this demon possession, and into the water. So not only was he trying to burn the kid, but he was trying to drown the kid. The demon would throw the kid into water trying to destroy him. So the father was constantly on his guard. And then, well, first off, and then it says, and then all of this was done in verse 22 to destroy him. You know, going to the beach and going to a pool is a lot of fun in the summertime. You need that, that period. But if you go with a toddler or a child, it's like a, a little, it's like horrifying. Because you realize like death is but seconds away. Death is a drink of my Diet Coke and looking away from him. Hey, Dad, look at this. Okay, where did he go? I mean, like it is that close when kids are around fire and water. Am I right? Why we do it, like bonfires, we did this. I have a picture of Justin sitting next to a bonfire. And I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah, here, three-year-old, stand next to this giant fire. It's like a little sharp shop of horrors everywhere. When you, like, it's amazing. When I, was a, when I was a kid growing up, I never saw danger in anything. My mom and dad can attest to that, okay? But now when you're a parent, you're like, everything is dangerous, they find ways to make it dangerous. And could you imagine this father from childhood, he's dealing with this kid who can't speak. Jesus is going to later tell us about the demon, that the demon also made the boy deaf. And not only that, every once in a while or regularly, the demon would have the boy convulse, become rigid, and try to throw him in fire or try to drown him. So this dad is like constantly walking around, talking about helicopter parent. Like, okay, all right, there's a fire right here. Come over here. Okay, watch out with the water. You imagine living like that for so long? Jesus does not need to know this, but he asks. And I believe it is to show great compassion and care. See, tell me what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to cast this demon out. That demon knows what's coming. That's why he's causing a scene. He knows it's coming, but Jesus cares. And so here's what the man asks. In, in verse 23, it says, And Jesus said to him, If you can... Or, I'm sorry, verse 22, it says this, but if you can do anything, the man asks, have compassion. That's the word I was talking about, spoknosomai. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Run to our assistance and aid. If you can do something, this has been tormenting us and our family for so long. This boy is probably burnt. He probably bears scars. He may even have some brain trauma for being thrust to the ground so much in these, in these seizures. He's having caused by demonic possessions. And he says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' response is amazing. And it shows his care and it shows his ability. Look in, look in verse 24. It says this immediately. The father of the, tri- the child cried out and he said, I believe! Excuse me, I skipped a verse. <laughs> I got it. I was like going to be something, and then it, I told you, struggle bus, okay? Let's go. I'm sorry. Jesus said to him, verse, I think everybody was like, what is he doing? Verse 23, I'm sorry. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
this is very odd language in, in the original language, but it's this, it's it's on purpose because it's like the guy asks, if you can do anything, help us out. And Jesus is like, you talking to me? You talking to me? If I can? Do you know who I am is the implied thing? Do you know who you're talking to? If I can? And then he answers in perfect Jesus fashion, just something that you weren't expecting. If I can? Of course I can. All things are possible for one who believes. I want to put this into two, two understandings. First off, Jesus, as the God-man who lived the perfect sinless life, lived in complete and utter faith and submission to Jesus, or to God the Father. So when he says all things are possible for those who believe, Jesus has perfect faith in God. And secondly, he says this to show us the power of faith. And we're going to talk about that in a second. I want you to put a pin in this because now let's get back to the verse I read so loudly a minute ago that was, was premature. Verse 24 says this, Immediately the father of the boy cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to come back to that. That's, we've got to look at that. Just, just bear with me for a second because I want to show you Jesus' ability yet again. And verse 25, it says this, And Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, and he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. What a day in the life of Jesus. In verse 27, it says this, But Jesus took the boy by the hand, and he lifted him up, and he arose. Something, something that had been afflicting this boy and his father and his entire family from childhood in a moment is taken away by Jesus casting out this demon. Jesus asked about the situation to express his care and concern. He, the man asked, if you are able... Please have compassion. Jesus is both able and he is both compa- and he is compassionate. I want you to get that. First off, we've seen this. As we prepare, we need to see our inability, spiritual power, anything of spiritual worth cannot be accomplished on our own. But Jesus, he is more than able and he is more than concerned and cares about his people. That's just something you, that, that we should know, that Jesus really does care. Thirdly, I want you to see this. I want you to see the power of faith. Notice this, and we'll go quickly here. We see this, um, that the man, the father, when he was crying out to Jesus, and, and Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible for those who have faith. What does the man respond with? I believe. But I need you to help my unbelief. I want you to get this. Through faith, Jesus is making a point in this passage that through faith, the, possi- the impossible is possible because God works through faith faith. He works through faith. Secondly, I want you to see this. Perfect faith is not required for the impossible to become possible. Put it this way. I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm talking about on our part, we don't have to have perfect faith for it to be possible. Jesus would go on, and if you look in Matthew chapter 17, um, Matthew chapter 17, which, which, which talks about, has this parable 
recorded in much, much more brevity. Matthew chapter 17 has this, Jesus would put this in, it says, a faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would be moved. The idea is not us walking around rearranging furniture with faith, okay, or rearranging our, the, the topography of, of t- Tennessee with our faith. No, the idea is that God works through faith to accomplish great and mighty things. Why? Because that is the ordained means. That's the way he decided to work things because it glorifies him the most. And so through faith and who he is, that is how he works. Secondly, I want you to know this. The perfect faith is not required. Jesus did have the perfect faith, but it's not required of this man because the healing comes through faith. And Jesus emphasizes that. And so we see this, that I want you to know something. It is not, quantity of faith is not the issue. There are some out there who would say, well, if this happened in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith. They don't have the right to say that. Secondly, the faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. So that is not the issue, is not the quantity of the faith here. The issue is the sufficiency of faith. That means is faith enough? And I want you to note two things about this. Faith is sufficient. Not, our faith is sufficient not because it's perfect, but because it has been given to us and declared sufficient. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift. So the very faith that you use to believe and, and that connects you to the promises of God is not of your own doing. It's a work of his grace. And so it's not about the quantity. It's about the sufficiency. And it's sufficient because it's been God-given. Secondly, I want you to know this. Because we are in Jesus, our faith does not have to be perfect, because his faith was. This man, he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I, if we're all honest, there, I bet you there would be most of us in here who says, I believe in Jesus. I believe he can do all things. I believe that he is the only way to salvation. I believe, but there are times of doubt that trickle in, and those doubts... Those doubts do not make the, the, does not call into question the validity of your faith. Rather, it points you to your faith's goal and aim, which is to be back with God. Because what does this guy say? I believe, Jesus, help. It's an imperative. It's asking. He's asking with force. He says, help my unbelief. And so here's a sign. If you're struggling on whether or not you have real faith or not, first off, do you see the deficiency in your faith? If you see the deficiency in your faith, that means God is showing you that where you're sinful, okay? That's first. Secondly, if you are crying out to God when you see your imperfections, Jesus, help my unbelief. It shows when we turn back and we come back in repentance, it shows that we are in Jesus. So I want you to understand something that Faith connects us to the power of God. That is the way he works. And then we get to this point in verse 28. After all of this crazy day, Jesus pulls his disciples to the side in verse 28, and he says this. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Hey, um, Jesus, why could we not cast out the demon? Jesus answers, and he said to them, This kind, which may suggest a hierarchy that there may be some demons that have more power than others, or it could just mean this particular type of spiritual adversary, meaning a demon, whatever, doesn't really matter. But he says basically this kind, this kind of spiritual work 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what is he saying there? He's talking about faith. This, 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 the, the, the core parts of the story are this, the inability of the disciples, which relates to our inability to do anything spiritually on our own. The second thing is the greatness and the kindness of Jesus and the way that the power of God is displayed to the people of God by faith. That faith does not have to be perfect. It just has to be in the perfect one, in the sufficient one. And if we are continually, even if we recognize our lack of faith, if we are continually running to Jesus, asking him to help our unbelief, he will work in our lives. And through that little, little faith that we have, just the size of a mustard seed, God can work and do great things and do what the impossible. What, what do we mean by impossible? You've seen the grace of God work in impossible ways. You ever seen that person? And maybe you were that person who was far, far from the things of God, but one day, and maybe a series of days you keep hearing the gospel over and over again and all of a sudden you believe and the impossible becomes possible people turn from their sins they've lived their life one way the whole time their their whole entire life and all of a sudden the grace of God they understand the gospel they have been born again and they respond in faith and what happens there's a change what can happen in a community like Hartsville that has churches on every corner but Jesus is largely not in the picture or at least not talked about, and does not have high esteem. What, what, would we say business as usual? This is just how Hartsville is? Or this could be God could use this church and other Bible-believing churches in the area to work a good work through our little mustard seed faith where we think we got it, and then sometimes we don't think we got it. I believe, help my unbelief. God can do the impossible through that little bit of faith because it's not about the quantity. It's about the person and the sufficiency of the person who gave us the faith. And so God can work. And so you see this. We have to come believing, not believing in ourselves. That's stupidity but believing in Jesus. Not coming thinking that because we believe that he will give us what we think we ought to have. No, true faith submits to Jesus in every way. And so we see this point. The disciples, they're wondering, God, what happened? We had, Jesus, we had gone out. We've cast out demons before. What happened? And he basically says, listen, this is a tough one. You try to do it on your own, and only these can be cast out through prayer because you know what prayer is? It is us at our, in, in one sense, it's us at our feeblest, and at one sense, it's us at our most powerful. Think about this. When there's a problem, we want to be like vanilla ice. If there's a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. I mean, that's what we want to do. Problem, solve it. And so we see a problem in the church, boom, let's solve that. Let's talk about that. Let's teach about that. Let's do this. That not saying not to act. I hope you get that. But I am saying, in one sense, when we pray, we think we are not solving problems. And I want us to understand that Jesus is saying, you cannot solve problems apart from me. And so come to me in prayer, disciples. And so it is one, we're, it's, it's us doing nothing in the sense of, actually trying to remedy things or in one sense, and I'm talking in a very, uh, a very carnal sense. It's just us sitting in a room with our Bibles, pouring out our hearts to God. That's going to be trivial, but in one sense, people think that, oh, there's, just, they're just, there's a problem. We've got to go solve it. And there's room for that, but I want you to, to hear this. Jesus is saying you couldn't do this because this type, 
cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. And so prayer, in one sense, we are feeble because we're not solving problems. But in one sense, we are the most powerful we'll ever be. Why? Because we, with our mustard seed faith, we are approaching the throne of God and saying, God, I can't do anything on my own. Not, not a thing. I can't make somebody come to Christ. I can't overcome this temptation. I can't say no to sin, and I can't worship and follow you, and I can't, I can't do it on my own. We don't like to say that. It goes against a lot of what's being said in our political processes. It, it goes against what we think in our life. But in, in general, I want you to see this, that, that we cannot do anything on our own. We are unable. But when we come to prayer, we are connecting by faith the faith enough to sit still, the faith enough to give our hearts and our problems to him, the faith enough to know that he knows better than we do, the faith enough to know that he is better than we are. That is the faith in which we are submitting ourselves to. And John MacArthur said it, said it best about this passage saying this. He said this, prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Let me say that to you again. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. And so we hope we've seen this as we prepare. We have seen, like the disciples, that we are unable to do anything of spiritual good on our own. Secondly, I hope we see this, that Jesus is compassionate and caring and that he is able to do far more than what we could ever ask or expect. And he does that through faith. And so when we connect to him in the power of faith, we are connected to the greatness of God. And he, will, he can work wonders through that. And we see this also, that one of the great ways that we express faith and tap into the power of faith is through prayer. And that's how we're going to prepare prayer, because I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask me to do something too, okay? And here's what it is. In preparation for revival, I'm going to invite each one of us to commit to a special time of prayer. Now, this is going to be taking place on Monday and Tuesday. But I'm asking you to do one thing. Give up one daily activity and use the time that you would use for that daily activity to pray specifically for, the, for God to powerfully work in the hearts and lives of our church and in others who will be coming. So, what does that look like? Well, I don't know what you do during the day. It's like one of the things is that some of us, we can skip meals, and that would be fine. That would be an idea, kind of a fasting thing, and we pray during that time. Some of you, that's not a reality. It's just not going to happen because of, um, you know, dietary concerns or what have you. But I'm inviting you to do something, okay? You play video games. Like, I saw, I saw some of us in here maybe play a video game. You usually, when you get home from, from whatever you do, you might play a video game. You might watch television. I say, don't do that that day. Spend that time, that time that you would do one activity, praying. Another thing is social media. You don't realize it or not, but, man, I tell you, it, we check our phones, like, constantly, whether it's text or whatever. Maybe you just need to put on airplane mode for a little bit, okay? And so you don't get that and take that time because I want you to know something. We have done everything in our power for this to be a good revival, but... We have no power. We can do everything that we can to make this a growing, godly church that reaches people. But apart from faith and apart from Jesus in our midst, we have no power.
And I like you to, I like us all just to reflect on that. So here's what's going to happen in just a second. I want to pray. I'm going to ask us all to join in the spirit of prayer. The worship team is going to come up, and they're going to sing a song that's going to be kind of one of the hallmarks of our revival. That's asking God to return us, to cause us to repent to an unswerving faith. And I'm just going to, you might not know it. You can sing along if you want to. Just kind of listen to the words. Let it wash over us. And let's prepare our hearts for God to do something great in us. Not because we got all the things in order. No, because he is gracious and kind and he works powerful things through faith. Let's pray believing. Come believing that he will do his will in our lives. Let's put the sails up to catch the wind of revival. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that um, we can gather around your word, that we had this opportunity to gather around your word for revival. And um, God, we ask that you would bring a revival, a reawakening, if you will. God, take us back to that place of unswerving faith, of trust. Cause us to repent, show us our sin. God, bring people to yourself. We recognize the disciples' inability and we see in them our own. We recognize in your response to the man, we see your ability and we see your graciousness to us. God, we recognize in the, that through faith in you that there is power unbelievable. And we come on this highway of prayer to you asking to let us see your power and glory for your honor. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.